Listen to Aaron Snyder, a revolutionized Civil Works team member, as he interviews author Simon Sinek during the CORE's Leadership Workshop on August 11, 2020. Mr. Sinek was inspiring CORE to leadership to take care of their people, focus on the end state, and having an infinite mindset. More information on the revolutionized Civil Works effort can be found by Googling Revolutionize USACE. You know, we'll be recording this part of the conference um, as well. So I guess, you know, what I wanted to do is start out with, you know, you know, as, you know, throughout history, the core has been faced with many challenges. Um, our, our mission size seems to grow. We have aging infrastructure. We have continuously increasing demands on water resource infrastructure. Um, obviously, there's impacts from storms and floods and, and even pandemics uh, that we see. So we have lots of great challenges, um, but it also creates opportunities with us. And, and we do have Simon Sinek here today to talk about leadership during these challenges. Um, obviously, Simon's a, a visionary thinker. Um, he's, he's focused on advancing a, a vision where the vast majority of people wake up every morning inspired, feel safe, and end the day fulfilled. And I think that's something that's really um, key to, to what our goal should be for our staff and the Corps of Engineers. So we're going to ask Simon to talk about that in a little bit. He's provided us with inspiration through his books of Start With Why, Leaders Eat Last, and most recently, The Infinite Game. Um, Simon's fascinated by people and organizations that make the greatest and longest-lasting impact in the world, um, which, again, represents the Corps of Engineers. We have a long-lasting impact you know, on the navigation, the flood risk mission, and ecosystem. Um, and, and Simon's focused on teaching leaders how to inspire people, which I think is a really important focus for us as we move forward. This isn't the first time that Simon's been with us. He was with us back in 2014. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to, to hearing from him here, here again. Um, and really what we've asked Simon to do today is to inspire our leaders to become visionaries, build trusting teams, and, and focus on these revolutionized efforts. So um, with that, it's my pleasure to introduce um, Simon Sinek. And, and Simon, I think first off, I, if we could, you know, talking about your vision uh, of inspiring people, having them feel safe and fulfilled, what are the, some of the most important approaches that leaders in a government agency need to do to um, really get to that uh, goal overall? Um, well, I don't think there's any reason to distinguish leaders in a government agency. I mean, leaders are leaders wherever they are. Um, and I think one of the things that um, – and, and, and DOD tends to understand this better than the civilian world, to be honest, but, um, which is what is a leader? Um, I think leadership is misunderstood, that leadership is not about being in charge, but it's the responsibility to take care of those in our charge. And very often we promote people because they're good at their jobs. You know, someone's a great engineer, you promote them to be in charge of all the other engineers. But that's a different skill set entirely. You know, being good at your job doesn't mean you're good at leading other people to be good at their job. Um, and this is one of the reasons we get managers and not leaders, because I really am better than, your, uh, than you at your job. That's what got me promoted. Too bad that's not your job anymore. Um, uh, and so I think one of the bigger challenges is we put people in positions without training them for that job, i.e. leadership position. So I think one of the things that government can do, and I said, as I said, DOD is better than most, but I think um, there's a lot of skills, skills that go into being a good leader that aren't being taught. So, for example, though you may go through leadership training, are you being taught um, empathetic listening or active listening? Are you being taught uh, um, how to have a difficult conversation? Are you being taught um, uh, effective confrontation? If you need to, if someone did something poorly and you, they need to get in trouble, is there a way to do it without destroying their morale uh, or their self-confidence, um, but rather that it becomes a growth opportunity? Um, and I, I think that's one of the biggest challenges for organizations th th these days, um, which is we're not equipping people to lead. 
Great. So talking about inspiration and leadership, um, and many of our leaders have transitioned from that execution role into the leadership roles um, and that visionary component, which they have now, which, you know, when making that transition, what are some of those key changes leaders should expect in, in how they need to behave and how should they be adjusting to those new roles? Well, as I said before, you know, you know, your your job is now to take care of other human beings and make sure that they have the skills, that they have the resources, that they have a, a clear path to do their jobs. Um, that doesn't mean uh, that we can't intervene and help where necessary, but but it's a, it's about seeing the people around us rise. Um, uh, and I think one of the challenges in a, in a, in a government agency, um, one of the reasons we get bureaucrats is because we don't allow people um, discretion. Um, you know, the, 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 the rules are the only thing they have. And at the end of the day, we don't trust people to follow rules. We trust people to know when to break them. Um, and uh, I'll give you two, a true story, two true stories. They're unrelated. Um, we have a very simple rule in the United States Air Force. Uh, don't fly in Iranian airspace. That's real simple, right? Um, there was a KC-135 uh, flying donuts, um, and the crew accidentally drifted into Iranian airspace. True story. Um, separate incident, separate story, nothing related. Same AOR. Um, another KC-135 is doing the same thing, and they get uh, a call from a fighter pilot in the, in the area who calls bingo, and he needs gas. And the crew makes the decision that the quickest way to get to him was to cut through, to slice through a little bit of Iranian airspace. Only one of those crews got in trouble. But the problem is if you put a bureaucrat in charge of that, because by the letter of the law, they both broke the same rule, they should both be punished. Um, and the problem with that is um, if you remove discretion, is you're now going to be creating an environment where people actually won't do the right thing because they're more afraid of getting in trouble. And we know what this looks like. We've seen it happen in the civilian world um, when these things, when the rules become more important um, than the people. Um, for example, we saw what happened on United Airlines where um, a passenger was dragged off the plane with a broken nose, broken teeth, and a concussion. And I actually feel sorry for every one of the crew members because 100% of that crew knew that that was the wrong thing to do, and yet none of them intervened um, because they were more afraid of getting in trouble than they were of doing the right thing. That's the worst thing we can do is create an environment where people fear getting in trouble more than doing the right thing because then people actually do get hurt. So, Simon, kind of building on the, the concept of bureaucrats and trusting teams, and, you know, I think in, in your book you talk about weak cultures. In weak cultures, people find safety in the rules, um, which damages trust, and to have high-performing teams, they start with trust. Uh, how, mm -hmm. as an organization with so many rules, um, can leadership mm -hmm. begin to address this challenge? Like, what should we do first? You know, how do you focus on trust with so many rules still in right. place? So, so um, it's, it's an accountability thing, right? Which is, in an organization that's low on trust, um, uh, we make the rules accountable. Because I can't get in trouble if I was just following the rules. The rules, the book becomes the accountability, right? Whereas in a high-trust organization, we make people accountable, not the book. Um, and so the question is, what is the organization doing to build trust? Um, uh, uh, so, for example, if somebody screws up instead of yelling and screaming at them, we say, okay, let's sit down and figure out what happened here. I'm not talking about negligence. You know, I'm not talking about, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, not, not everybody is a high performer every, every day and not, every, not everything goes smoothly. The question is, what happens when things don't go smoothly? Um, um, are we, are, is there an environment in which people can raise their hand and say, I made a mistake? You know, we've all, we all know what it feels like to work on a trusting team. 
it literally is that is that expression where someone can raise their hand and say, "Hey, I made a mistake," or I, I, I haven't been trained for the job you've been you've asked me to do. I need more training, or I've got trouble at home. It's affecting my work, or I'm scared, or I need help. Without any fear of humiliation or retribution, without any fear that by saying these things, it'll somehow uh, inhibit their uh, career growth or their promotability, but rather they say these things with the uh, the confidence that someone will rush to support them, be it a colleague or a boss. Um, we also all, unfortunately, know what it feels like not to be on a trusting team, where you would never admit a mistake for fear of getting in trouble, humiliated, or affecting your promotability. Um, we do not ask for help, and it's better that we that we pretend that we know what we're doing than, than admit that, that we don't know what we're doing, which may work in the short term, but over, over time, uh, organizations break that way. That kind of moves us towards, you know, culture change and adapting to the future, and um, you know, one thing we focused on really, how can we shift our mindset to get away from protectionism and protecting our current business model and embracing some of that change, uh, both in just how we deliver, but also culturally? Um, so here's the, the reality about being human is none of us is strong enough or smart enough to, to do this alone. We're not strong enough or smart enough to, 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 to manage our own careers alone, to solve problems alone. It, we're social animals. We need each other. Um, and so if you're going to change a culture, um, it requires courage. Um, and none of us has the courage to do it alone. It's going to take small groups of us. And so if one of us thinks that it's worth it and somebody else thinks it's worth it and somebody else thinks it's worth it, we have to look out for each other. Um, you know, the courage to, to do something slightly differently, and it doesn't have to be revolutionary. It can come in small steps. Um, the problem with revolution is it stands out. It's violent. It's loud. There's usually a counter-revolution um, and it may or may not be sticky once that person leaves. Um, the nice thing about evolution is it tends to be slow. It tends not to offend people, um, and it, you produce enough change that over the course of time there's no going back. Um, uh, uh, requires patience. That's one of the hard things. Um, uh, so I think I think where there are opportunities to work within the system to change the system, um, you're in the shadows and no, nobody's bucking you because as soon as you're loud, you know, remember the people who defend the status quo, are the people who benefit most from the status quo. Um, and, and I sort of hate this idea where, you know, you always hear this in presentations, you know, people fear change. No, they do not. People fear sudden change. That's all. <laughs> um, but, but, but little, little incremental change, you know, how do you eat an elephant, one, elephant one mouthful at a time? Uh, it's the way you do it. And I'm, I'm a great believer in you do it with a team of volunteers. You, 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 it's, there's a lo- something called the law of diffusion of innovation, which is a theory from the 1960s, which is basically how you affect change in, in, these, in these kinds of organizations. It's how you affect cultural change, which is we accept that, that all populations sit across the standard deviation, the old bell curve, right? If you have low, high performers, you're going to have low performers, and you're going to have, have an average. What the law of diffusion tells us is that the first – Two and a half percent of our population are our innovators and our early adopters. Uh, these are the big idea people, the people who see the future that we don't see. Um, sorry, those are your innovators. Then you have your early adopters, which are the next 12 and a half percent. These are the people who they have a higher risk tolerance. They're willing to try something new because they believe it's the right thing to do. They understand that it comes at some personal expense, sometimes time and energy, sometimes money. Um, then you have the majority, which is the bell, the average. And then you have the, the laggards at the end. Uh, the last 16%, who they're only going to change when, quite frankly, they're forced to when somebody with way more authority tells them that they have to. Um, and sometimes even then they resist. Um, uh, m- most people believe that you have to change the bell to change an organization. And this is why we usually see these sort of 
these big sweeping changes where senior leadership announces this is how we're going to do it from now, or we have big PowerPoint presentations saying, hey, guys, we need to make this change. I need you to change your mindset. And quite frankly, it doesn't work, right? and it's definitely not sticky. Um, and, it, uh, and the reason is is because the majority, um, they have a r- lower risk tolerance. Uh, they want to know what's in it for them. They want to know, you know, am I safe if everything goes wrong? They don't have that same risk tolerance. And so that early majority, the people who buy a new piece of technology, uh, uh, that, that those early adopters um, who buy a new piece of technology when it first comes out, even if it's imperfect, they stand in line for a new Star Wars film for six hours, even though you can just go see it in two weeks and just buy a ticket and walk in. They believe that sacrifice is worth it. So if you want to affect systemic change, you actually don't aim at the bell. You aim at the early adopters. You start talking in language about the kind of change you imagine. You speak in inspiring terms. People come up to you after a conference and say, hey, I I really like what you had to say. Those are the people whose names you write down. You say, I want you to try this. I want you to do this. And you start to affect change. We we did this in in a large DOD organization. I'll leave out which one. Uh, But let's just say it's very, very, very large. And um, we knew that they had a cultural problem. Um, morale was low. People felt disconnected from the organization. And we started using this law of diffusion of innovations and, and seeding a new language. And within two years, we had senior leadership um, inc- at the secretary level, included at the secretary level, using the language that we had seeded, and yet we never had a single meeting with senior leadership. It was all law of diffusion. And that change uh, remains sticky to this day. After multiple, there's been at least three or four changes of leadership that have happened in this organization since we made the change, and the language and the impact of the cultural change still remains. So, you know, focusing on the early adopters a little bit and, you know, thinking about across the different generations, you know, what can, you know, our senior leaders do today to encourage and enable some of those early adopters and maybe the next generations, our future leaders, to to get involved and raise their hand and, um, you know, take advantage of the talents that they have? Um, So sometimes it's as simple as just, uh, allowing them, you know, th- there's a lot of people with unbridled passion and it's, you know, we, we stump on unbridled passion all the time. Um, and it's, it's very hard to create passion. It's very hard to, to turn it on. It's much easier to turn it off. But the problem is once you turn it off, we disincentivize it being turned back on again. And so if somebody has unbridled passion, the question is, what are you going to do with it? Where can you put them? And you can put some, you can put some, some edges on the sandpit. That's no problem. Um, um, you know, if someone goes a little bit out of line, you just pull them aside and be like, listen, I freaking love your passion. I just need you to stay within the these, these sandbox because otherwise it's, you're going to make it impossible for me to help you. Um, you know, it, it, in other words, be encouraging as opposed to yelling at them like, how dare you go outside the line. Um, you've got people who are already affecting change. You, you, I bet if I ask you to think about who the people who push the boundaries and who are do, trying to do the right thing right now, sometimes at personal risk of getting in trouble, you, you know who they are. Some of them are listening on this call. Um, equally so, you know who are the ones who will fight tooth and nail to defend the way things have always been done because that's how we've done it, even though they can't tell you why that's why, how we do it or that it's even good that's how we do it. That's just how we've always done it. You know those names too. Um, um, I'm a great believer in, in doing things in small pockets, quite frankly. Um, you know, when you have a, a small, highly functioning team that's full of trust, those people leave and they go off and they join other teams and they bring their skills with them. Um, so you have a lot of unbridled passion in your organization. You have a lot of ideas in your organization. We don't ask junior people what they think. Um, and I th- especially in a, a hierarchical organization like, uh, like many DOD uh, agencies, um, 
we, we ask all the senior most people to sit in rooms and, and, and solve problems. These are the same people who haven't served on the front line uh, in, you know, sometimes over a decade, and they don't know what the challenges are. I'm a great believer in bringing in very, very smart junior people who sit on the front lines and say, tell us what you see. It doesn't mean they get to make decisions, but it means they get to be a part of the, the, the strategy or planning or even tactical uh, process. Um, we, we're taking guidance from people who literally are, are seeing and doing things every day. David Marquet, who wrote a book called uh, Turn the Ship Around, um, he talks about this. He talks about how the people at the top have all the authority and none of the information, and all the people at the bottom have all the information and none of the authority. And the goal is not to push the information up. The goal is to push the authority down. You know, in, in thinking about encouraging innovation and bringing people to the forefront, and obviously, you know, we don't want to be out there yelling at people because that clearly discourages. Are there little things that, you know, we should be doing besides encouraging or, or on the flip side, like what are some of those negative attributes maybe that um, we see day to day that might, you know, really hold back that innovation um, and we don't even know about it? Well, I think we we – as I said before, you know, we, we defer to the rules, we defer to the way things have always been done, not because it's right, but because it's familiar or for, because it's comfortable, um, which is legitimate. We're, you know, human beings crave comfort and, and we want things to be easier. Um, but I think there's a very, it's a very good practice to, to ask the question, why are we doing this way and is there a better way to do it? Um, the answer can, can come back, um, this way works fine. Here's why we do it this way. Um, but I think, I think especially when things cause um, cultural issues, they cause friction, um, or even they actually slow things down, I think for somebody to ask the question and to legitimately say, you know, does anybody know why we do it this way? Because if mo- and if everybody shrugs their shoulders, <laughs> there's probably an opportunity to say, well, wh- what way would you do it now? I, I think COVID is a fantastic, is a fantastic um, uh, learning environment. And what I mean by that is, you know, crisis is the great revealer um, because all the things that may have been lingering, good and bad, you can see them much more starkly during crisis. Um, and for the organizations that are struggling to pivot in, in COVID right now, basically they're the ones that have doubled down on their old business models. How do we do what we were always doing and, and, and do it in, during COVID times? Um, the organizations that are more successfully pivoting, they're saying, okay, let's pretend that um, um, we're starting our organization from scratch, and this is the environment we're starting our organization on. How do, we, how do we share the value that we have with others, given all the circumstances we have now? And they're basically operating like startups, no matter how much success they have, they've had in the past, um, meaning everything's on the table. Everything's up for reinvention. Um, uh, I also think, in just to digress slightly, um, one of the things that leaders can learn more of uh, is empathy. Um, uh, you know, in other words, someone is not the problem, but they may have a problem. You know, if, if we walk into their office and say, what have you done now versus what has happened? <laughs> uh, and how can I help? I, I want to switch gears a little bit, Simon, you know, thinking about like the, yeah, so ethical fading, um, you know, with the, the, the workload that the Corps had for a long time, um, you know, being in that, you know, the Army and DOD, we get a lot of extra guidance. Um, you know, there's extensive requirements and sometimes bureaucratic processes on our staff. Um, yeah. That puts a lot of pressure on our team. Um, and so what yeah. risks do we face as an agency from ethical fading? <laughs> so I learned about ethical fading from the Army. Uh, uh, I saw a presentation at a, at a DOD uh, event by Dr. Lenny Wong, 
uh, who who is a retired uh, colonel from the army. Um, and basically, he, he introduced me to this concept. It's a psychological concept called ethical fading. It's where people inside an organization, it's a cultural problem, it's not an individual problem. It's where people inside an organization, um, uh, it becomes culturally acceptable to make unethical decisions. And the people who are making those decisions um, uh, believe that they are uh, well within their ethical framework. They don't believe they're doing anything wrong. And the example that uh, he gave, he gave a few, for example, uh, in the army, um, they have young, it, it's worth saying, by the way, that the military believes that they hold it themselves to a higher ethical standard than, than civilian populations, and civilian populations agree. They think that the, the, the military holds itself to higher ethical standards. And so when um, one of the requirements before um, uh, soldiers were sent uh, downrange is they had to do some online prep training. Um, and uh, what they would do is these young officers would uh, – would collect the IDs of everybody uh, in their in their in their squad, and they would have the smartest guy in the room plug in the cat cards nine times and do the test nine times and spit out all the certificates. Everybody showed that they'd completed the training and now they can all go downrange. That's called lying. That's highly unethical. But they didn't think that they, that they'd done anything wrong. Um, and when questioned about it, they were able to easily rationalize it. Um, it's what you got to do. It's just what my boss wants. It's just the system. Uh, I have no choice. Everyone's doing it. Or worse, um, the Army had created a system where telling the truth actually was more likely to hurt your career more than telling the lie. So by not completing the training and saying it's impossible to do it because you actually have more training required than there are training days in the calendar, you're actually going to hurt your promotability um, as opposed to getting everything done that makes you more promotable because you show that despite unrealistic expectations, look, I can get everything done. So the army accidentally set up a situation in which soldier, soldiers were doing unethical things. So the conditions on ethical fading are basically varying degrees of self-deception. And there's many ways that that happens. I talked about one, this kind of rationalizing, we, we, we shift the accountability away. You never say, oh yeah, I lied because I got ahead. You say, it's the system. That's my favorite one. It's the system. I have no choice. That's what's required of me. I got to put food on the table. All of these things. Uh, also, the overuse of euphemisms. Uh, you know, like companies, for example, um, no one would ever spy on their customers, but they love data mining. Well, what's the difference, right? We we we, we saw it happen during the Gulf War. Like our nation, fundamentally, because of our values, does not believe in torture. Enhanced interrogation sounds very appealing. Um, by creating uh, uh, euphemisms, we're able to distance ourselves from the impact of our our decisions. And organizations that struggle with ethical fading overuse euphemism. Um, the other one is uh, the old proverbial slippery slope. You know, somebody does it, they get away with it. Somebody else does it, they get away with it. Um, somebody does something bigger, it works fine. And before you know it, it's pervasive. It's the norm. Um, uh, and so these things need to be shut down. Um, uh, organizations that, that suffer from ethical fading, we've seen them in the private sector. You know, pharmaceutical companies who have a patent on an essential drug for cancer patients, for example, um, they raise the price of that drug, uh, you know, 500, 600, 800, 1,000 percent. It's not illegal, but my goodness, is it unethical. And yet nobody at the company thinks they've done anything wrong. I think it's really funny when we in the civilian, it, when we, we look at bankers and things like that who created the 2008, uh, you know, stock market crash, and we say things like, how do you sleep at night? And they sleep just fine because they don't think they've done anything wrong.
Mm-hmm. Ethical fading is something to be uh, watched for. Um, an infinite mindset is like an insurance policy against it. Excessive focus on short-term metrics and poor leadership are more likely to create um, ethical fading. Yeah, and, and talking about metrics and delivery, I think in your in your book you talked about a corporation where all the metrics were green all the time, but they were hemorrhaging money. Um, yeah, you know, within yeah. the core of engine, in, in the core, we have a lot of metrics on our project delivery that show green quite often, uh, which means right. would mean that we're succeeding in that delivery. Yet when we hear from right. our stakeholders, sponsors, and Congress, they say we cost too much and we take too long. You know, is there something right. leadership should be doing to to bridge that gap or understand you know what's happening? Uh, between the short and perhaps long-term yeah. performance? Yeah, you're talking about uh, the Ford Motor Company. Um, when Alan Mulally left Boeing and he took over the Ford Motor Company, it was a de- company in steep decline, and he sat down with his senior executives for his weekly meeting, and he asked them a simple question, tell me how the company is doing. And these are very senior executives, remember. Uh, they're all reporting to the CEO. Um, and each of them showed all green on all of their scorecards. And so Mulally asked a simple question, you know, this company is, is, is hemorrhaging money and you're telling me everything's fine. That can't be true. And so the next week, the same thing, all green, and he'd say the same thing. This company's hemorrhaging money and you're telling me everything's fine. That can't be true. And eventually one guy mustered up the courage to make one slide red. And it was Mulally's response that was very important. He said, thanks for the transparency. Now, what can we do to help him? The reason the organization was the way it was uh, is because in the past, if you presented a red slide, you got fired. And so what did they all start doing? They all started lying. Um, and so you need an organization that wants to know everything that's broken. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll use a funny war example only because it just popped into my mind. I can't remember if it was the, the Yom Kippur War or the, the Six-Day War in Israel, but the Israelis had decimated the Jordanian Air Force before they even left the ground. There was nothing left. And yet, uh, because the punishments were so severe, command reported up, uh, the reports came up to, they never told command. So you had senior command, you know, coming up with uh, an Air Force response with no Air Force. Um, this, is, this is an extreme example of what happens when people fear telling the truth. You need to create an environment which people embraced, uh, embrace the truth, even if it's difficult or uncomfortable. Um, I love at the end of a project, um, instead of patting ourselves on the back about how well we did and pointing out all the things that went right, I love to ask the question at the end of a project, what sucked and what sucked less? Um, um, and you create, you create a culture where people want to talk about all the broken things, all the missed opportunities, all the things that were fine, because fundamentally every organization should be uh, obsessed with um, constant improvement. In other words, you hope that everything you do is better than the last. Well, the only way you can do that is if you're really honest about what happened at the last, whether it's a small project or a big project in micro or macro format. What sucked and what sucked less? Get in the habit <laughs> of those debriefs. Yeah, and, and you know, you're looking at, at common sense throughout as well. You know, one con- yeah. concept that was I don't think was in your books, um, but it was in definitely in the book club, and we talked about it. They talked about it quite a bit, or you did. Um, is dynamic subordination? Could, could you talk a little bit about that concept and how that that could be applied to make a, an organization more of an infinite organization? And then after this, we'll go into some Q and A with uh, with everybody. So please start chatting in those questions. Uh, that's Rich Devinney's concept. Uh, he, he, he's the expert on that stuff. Uh, Rich uh, is the former training commander for Dev Group, um, and uh, and 
And so he, he, he's the one who talks about dynamic uh, subordination. Um, uh, so we'd have to check in with him on that. Okay. Yeah, that, that concept, you know, my understanding was it was kind of like basically you let the expert kind of be the leader no matter what your rank is. Um, Correct. You know, so when, when there's somebody that's, you know, an expert in one Correct. field, you're able to, you know, give them the range and let them be in control. So even though you have right. a hierarchy – during specific tasks and focus, you're able to really transfer that responsibility to others. Um, and, and that just and, seems and, like something and, that could really help. It, it, the thing that a lot of uh, people in authority are afraid of that is they think they're, they think they're uh, giving away their rank or their position, and they're not. What they're simply saying is there's somebody who knows more about the subject than I do, and it would be smart for me to defer to this person or at least take counsel from this person. And if it's, if it's something tactical, to let them actually do the job. You know, if you're the most senior person in the office, but you don't know how to change the paper in the printer, you go to the person who knows how to change the paper in the printer and be like, will you do this for me? You've given up none of your authority. It's the same thing. Now, if you're willing to let somebody, you know, show you how to work your email, uh, then let them do their job as an engineer as well if they know more about a subject than you do. That, that's dynamic subordination. And by the way, it builds massive, massive trust with a team because um, we now as the team see that our boss actually uh, 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 makes us feel valued and valuable, and we actually have value. And when we give people that kind of uh, accountability, um, they tend to rise to the occasion. It's when our boss comes in and swoops in and solves every problem that we tend to see accountability decline, ironically. So, so I, you know, a couple questions moving to the chat here now. Um, so, again, encourage everybody, you know, put, put your chats you know, questions in there for, for Simon here, but we got a couple. Um, so, Simon, one of the questions is, is how do leaders adapt and thrive to the virtual work environment? Um, <laughs> uh, this is very similar to a question I got um, when COVID started, which was a frequent question I got, which is, how has leadership changed during these COVID times? And the answer is, it hasn't. Um, um, so, for example, uh, uh, when COVID began, for example, um, many people in positions of rank or authority did the thing that any good human being would do, um, uh, uh, which is we called up our team individually on the phone. And we said, hey, you okay? How are you doing? I'm just checking in with you. Um, well, why did it take a global pandemic for you to do that? That's called good leadership. You know, somebody struggling at work what we usually do is we walk into their office and say, what the hell is the problem versus are you okay? Or worse, we don't say anything. Um, there've been some really funny studies on this. I forgot the exact numbers, but you'll get, you'll get the idea, which is um, uh, when our bosses ignore us, like don't give us any compliments or criticism, um, something like 80% of employees are disengaged from their work. I mean, it's a very high number. When our bosses yell at us, um, we're, it goes down to like 50% disengagement. And if our boss gives us one compliment on something we do, it goes down to like 5% disengagement. Um, the thing that I find really hilarious about that is getting yelled at actually ha has us more engaged than our boss ignoring us because it, at least we know that we exist, you know, in their lives, which is such a funny thought. Um, but, but we've seen a lot of good leadership things happen in COVID where we became very human. Well, I hope that those that those habits uh, remain. Um, one of the hard things about um, being digital is we're disconnected. Um, uh, and, and a lot of organizations falsely believe that, look how functional we are digitally, why would we ever go back to the office? 
Yeah, well, first of all, those relationships pre-existed. Good luck onboarding somebody new in this format. And number two, take it from somebody who's run a, um, a virtual organization for the past decade, it requires a lot more work um, because you don't have the benefit of being like, hey, you want to get lunch or bumping, to some, bumping into somebody in the hallway or walking into a meeting with somebody and walking out, a meeting with, uh, out of a meeting with somebody, um, passing someone in the hallway and be like, oh, by the way, I needed to tell you something. It's all those little interactions that actually create relationship and, and allow us to start to build trust. Those are completely eliminated. Um, every single one of those, every single one of those is eliminated in a digital format, which means we actually have to create artificial environments for those things to happen, like a, a, a huddle, a weekly huddle where we actually don't talk about work. We just talk about how is your weekend, what's on your heart and mind, uh, all those little human interactions. Um, so we have to remember that leadership continues to be human. Um, we have to create those artificial environments where we can express our humanity and just talk about um, who we are and what we're doing and what we believe and what's going on at home and all of this stuff that you would talk about in the hallway or at lunch. Um, uh, and we have to remember to, to, to check in with people, uh, especially during crisis when trauma affects different people at different times in different ways. Oh, good. And, and one thing, you know, I think I've noticed is, um, you know, face-to-face is, is great, but it really comes down to diversity. I've, I've noticed a lot of people that are shyer in those face-to-face meetings now with the chat and all this other stuff have also been able to get some great ideas out there. Um, so really take advantage of all situations uh, when we can have it. But, you know, diverse interactions is, is what's most important, it seems like, to generate those ideas and allow that communication. Um, and, and looking at our and chat. And the reality we, is – sorry. Go ahead, Simon. I was just going to make one more point at the risk of beating a dead horse. You know, digital cannot replace good old-fashioned human interaction. Um, there is no brainstorming that's happening on a – WebEx right now that is as good as putting a bunch of people in a room with a whiteboard. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Yeah. I, I would even say, you know, having this fireside chat um, would be a little bit easier if we were sitting face to face and, um, you know, didn't have to look through a computer screen. Uh, you know, there, but one of the questions is, you know, getting into communications. Um, our organization is pretty la- large, you know, you know, 30, more than 30,000 people. Um, we are trying to take these evolutionary steps to drive culture, but, you know, we need to be able to communicate that. Are there any ideas on what we could be doing differently or better in communication across the organization? Oh, that was from Cherie. Yes. Uh, the answer is, boy, yes. Uh, government is really bad at communicating, and DOD might be worse. Um, uh, everything goes to too often, so much of the communication it, is about explaining or fact-based, you know, and I mean, just look at the number of mission statements across DOD and they're actually, or vision statements, even worse. They're not vision statements at all. They're all kind of the same thing to be the preeminent supplier of blah, 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 offering highest quality, blah, 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 you know, fight, win, blah, 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 whatever it is. You know, it's, it's, they're all the exact same thing. One is indistinguishable from another, except for whatever the headline on the, on the, on the first vision. Those, those aren't vision statements. Those are just statements of fact. That's your, that's your job. It's not inspiring. That's just what you do. Um, and the question I would ask is if it's truly a vision, and remember, we call it vision because you can see it. It's in your mind's eye. It's in your imagination. We call it vision. Um, and so if everything you were to do would go absolutely perfectly, if everything that the Corps of Engineers did huge, just completely perfectly, tell me what the world would look like. Describe that world that has nothing to do with engineering or the Corps of Engineers. Describe the world, right? Um, 
and you know, I use obvious examples, you know, woman well, created equal endowed with unalienable rights. That certainly wasn't the case when we wrote that document, and we're still struggling to achieve that ideal. But what they wrote down was a vision, which is if we get everything right, that's the world we will live in, and that's something we should strive for and we'll die trying, even though we know we'll never get there. Um, Martin Luther King, the dream. One day little black children will play, you know, will, will play on the playground with hold hands on the playground with little white children. That's, that's the vision. He, he, he painted a picture for us of where we're trying to get to. And if everything went perfectly, that's the world we would live in. Um, and so I think for, uh, you know, and I, I saw the question here, which is, you know, you're doing a good job inward, inwardly. Uh, however, it's not working out, outside. I assume that's what our CW program is. Uh, um, uh, then I would argue that it's not working internally as, the, as well as you think it is. Because people are people. And people respond to an inspirational message exactly the same whether they work for your organization or whether they don't work for your organization. And if you're not inspiring the outside world and you know that, then the odds are you're probably not inspiring the inside world as much as you think you are. But, but, yeah. to, rely on, but to rely on, you know, visionary language. Think about all of the visionary leaders who we love, whether they're in business or in, in military. You know, they speak in lofty terms. Um, and and sometimes the explanation of faulting for the fact, not to mention the fact, I'm tired of reading a vision statement that is literally two and a half paragraphs long. You know, it's a sentence. Give me a sentence. Let me ca capture a vision. Don't explain how you're going to get there, all the details, all the challenges, and the product in the vision statement. All that stuff's important, but not in that statement. So looking at the, the next couple of questions here, a um, question from uh, Ms. Brown. Uh, how do the principles in the infinite game apply to a government organization? And, and maybe combining the question from Matt Parks, you know, what does success look like for that organization? So let's, you know, um, I don't know if everybody's familiar with the infinite game. So just really quickly, um, Dr. James Carson, the mid-1980s, articulated that there are two types of games, finite games and infinite games. Finite games are defined as known players, fixed rules, and agreed-upon objectives. Um, uh, baseball, football, there's always a beginning, middle, and an end. Um, infinite games are defined as known and unknown players. Uh, the rules are changeable, and the objective is to perpetuate, to stay in the game. So, for example, you have to know the game you're in before you can even decide that. So when you're building uh, uh, a dam, let's say, um, there's a beginning, middle, and end, and standard metrics apply. You know, what's the cost? What's the time? You know, uh, does it work? Um, and when you're done with that, on to the next, right? There's literally a beginning, middle, and end. So finite metrics are perfectly legitimate uh, if, it's a finite, if it's a finite thing. The core of engineers itself is infinite. You want the organization to survive forever, preferably. Um, and so those are the more cultural questions. So what are the things we have to do to ensure survival for the rest of time? Um, and that's why I talk about having a, a mindset for constant improvement. Um, so when you talk about the metrics, First of all, even in the infinite game, the traditional metrics still apply. The question is, what's the context? And I often talk about it in terms of lifestyle. We overuse war and sports analogies when we talk about our organizations. We overuse finite examples when talking about infinite circumstances. So when you talk about the cultural change or the organization itself, and by the way, how you do projects is more infinite than the projects you're actually doing, you know? So uh, I, the, the analogy needs to be one of a, uh, the metaphor needs to be one of, of lifestyle. So what does it take to be a healthy human being? You want to exercise, you want to eat healthy, you know, you want to get a lot of sleep and maintain your personal relationships, probably a list of 30 other things. Hard to do all of those things perfectly all the time, but you strive for them. And it's totally fine to have finite goals. 
I want to lose X amount of weight by X date. Um, um, and you, you stand on the scale every day, and metrics are good. They help us measure speed and distance. That's what metrics do. Um, and if you achieve your goal, you're all excited, but you still have to keep doing it. It's like you can't – just because you built a dam on time and on budget, great. Now you have to do it again and again and again and again. In other words, it's not over. Uh, it's not actually finite. It's part of something more infinite. Um, uh, uh, um, and if you miss your goal, uh, you know, in, 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 your, in, your weight, in your weight loss regime, the, react, the reality is nothing happens. Uh, you know, because it was arbitrary, it was arbitrarily set in the first place in an infinite in an infinite scenario. We, we choose our own goals in an infinite scenario. We choose our own metrics in an infinite scenario. But the reality is, when we play with an infinite mindset, the traditional metrics still still should increase. So you'll find where there's a well-led infinite-minded uh, leader, uh, a well-led organization led by an infinite-minded leader, you'll find the traditional metrics tend to outperform uh, the others. Um, uh, so the, the the question was, you know, how do you define uh, success in an infinite game? Well, the que- that's a very good question, which is it's not just measuring what you achieve; it's measuring uh, it's m- momentum and improvement. So what sucks? What sucks less? You know, where is there opportunity for improvement? Are you able to do all the things that I wrote about? Do you have a just cause? Are you building trusting teams? Are you studying your worthy rivals? Are you able to identify your weaknesses that you can that you can build upon? Um, do you need to make an ex- existential flex? Do you have that capacity, and do you have the courage to do any of these things? And if the answer is no anywhere, then start working on those things. Yeah, you, you know that's it's hard. That's all all really good. It, it is hard, and that you know that's that's one of the the challenges we have for our leaders is you know looking at this revolutionized effort we're trying to do. It it's, you know, change is hard. You know, push the envelope and. You know, we, we heard a little bit here about, you know, vision, obviously, and there's a comment here about vision statements being memorable. And um, really, it seems like those vision statements need to inspire us as an organization. And unfortunately, um, when you go in and ask many of the, the core staff, you know, what's our vision statement, they can kind of piece it together. But um, unfortunately, it hasn't been a lot that I've just been able to, to, to recite it and say, this, yeah. this inspired me. And you know, really, who's responsible for that vision? Is it the top level or all leaders? I mean, a lot of the, the core's campaign plan, all these other plans, they start at the top and work their way down. Um, you know, but that approach, you know, might be missing the grassroots innovation. Um, so where should all of these efforts start? You know, should the tail wave you know, the dog, per se? Uh, it's not should, it's could. Um, the reality is if it comes from the top, it's way more efficient. Um, so do you want it to come from the top? Sure, I'd love it to come from the top. Good leadership from the top is wonderful. We can all feel it. And it's just, it, it gets sticky a lot quicker. But if you don't have good leadership at the top, and even though they're good people, they just may not be infinite-minded leaders, um, then it can come from the middle. Absolutely. The, the example I gave of the other DOD organization absolutely came from the middle, from well-intentioned people who are better articulating the organization's cause than, than leaders itself, uh, leaders themselves. Um, uh, uh, I think we also need to push, push the, the definition of memorable. You know, I think, I think a, a vision needs to be more than memorable. It needs to be relevant. It needs to be inspiring. It needs to touch the core of who I am. Um, if it's memorable, maybe it's because it was just written, you know, in a cute little jingle and I can remember it. Uh, is it memorable because I've heard it 55,000 times and I can say it back with rote, but I, when I repeat it back, I, I like look up and I remember it from my, my uh, memory, not because it actually appeals to me. You know, vision is when somebody 
you know, you should be recruiting people to work in your organization who are inspired by your vision and want to really, really work in your organization, that they chose not to take a job with Bechtel or they chose not to take a job in a different uh, part of the army, um, but they really wanted to work here because your vision inspires them. Um, and, uh, uh, and when they recite the vision, it's not just because they remember it. It's, they're saying it as, as, as if they wrote it. They're saying it as if they're own. Like you, you tap something deep, deep, deep inside of them that makes them feel this is where I belong. Um, uh, you know, the Marine Corps does an exceptionally good job of this. When Marines talk about anything about the Marines, it's as if they're talking about themselves. It's all stuff that's written on the wall that was drilled into them at, at, at boot camp, but it's, they, it's, they claim it as their own. The Air Force, when the Air Force talks about every airman and an innovator, you know, that, that appeals to that mentality. Uh, so so a, 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 good, a good vision uh, should tap something deep inside of all of us. Let me rephrase. The good vision should tap something deep inside those who belong in the organization. There will be those who don't belong, and the question is, are you recruiting to that ideal or you're just recruiting to someone's GPA and resume? Because not every engineer belongs in the Corps of Engineers, even the smart ones. Certainly. Um, you know, so I think we're, we're getting close to the end of our time here. And, Simon, you know, with, you know, your vision of, of inspiring leaders, um, so what would be some, you know, maybe some final parting words that you would have to inspire our leadership to have the courage to, to make that change and really uh, to be able to implement some of those common sense uh, ideals that we hear about but tend to be so hard? Um, is there some, something that you'd say to them and, and what they should be doing? Yeah, and I, and I like this question here. You know, everybody's nodding their heads, and yet why isn't anybody doing it? You know, why is it so hard to implement? Um, you know, it's because we, we, we nod our heads, but then we're islands, right? Uh, like we're going to log off or leave the meeting, and that's it. Maybe we'll say to somebody, well, that was fun, you know, or we'll, we'll make that complaint. Like, that's so true. How come nobody's doing it? Well, you know, I'm a great believer that leadership is a team sport, that no one's good enough, strong enough, or smart enough to be a leader by themselves. Um, and so who's your leadership buddy? You know, you would never send anybody in to do anything without a battle buddy. You wouldn't, you know, you, 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 need, you wouldn't go scuba diving alone. Uh, you always take a buddy. Well, who's your leadership buddy? That if you think any of this stuff is important, relevant, and, and, and uh, necessary, then turn to somebody who, who's, who's also here nodding their head and, and ask yourself this question. What's the cheapest, simplest thing we can do with the highest probability of success? In other words, where's something where we can affect very simple change very easily? You know, it doesn't – one of the big mistakes people make is when they look to innovate or affect change, they, they work – let me give you an analogy. We want to redo our website, right? So we hired a company, and they, we, we, have it, we told them all of the specs or, or some sort of acquisition, right? It's like we, we give all the, all, of the, all the specs, and we're going to try and build to that spec, and you know exactly what happens. It costs way more money than expected. It always is late, and it never quite works the way that you want it to work. And then now you spend all your time and energy trying to fix it and make it go back to what it was supposed to do. Here's a better thing. Yes, have the vision of where you're going to, but don't try and build that. Just do the first step. Again, what's the cheapest, simplest thing we can do with the highest probability of success that takes us one step towards that? Okay, now, what's the cheapest, simplest thing we can do to improve upon that? Or what's the next cheapest, simplest thing we can do with the highest probability of success that takes us another step towards that thing? And if you keep going in that incremental stage, what you find out is by the time you've had a few years, you're actually way past and way better than the thing you were originally planning. And so it's the same for the culture. Get together as a team, offer each other 
uh, top cover and say to, say to each other, what's the cheapest, simplest thing we can do with the highest probability of success? Maybe it's just changing the front page of a damn PowerPoint, right? Um, uh, maybe it's just not using a PowerPoint. Uh, um, uh, but my point is, is there are really simple things you can do that over the course of time will start to affect significant cultural changes, and you just keep doing it. But the vision is the thing that keeps you focused on where you're going. You cannot drive across the country without a destination, right? Where are you going? On vacation. Well, where are you going to, how are you going to get there? I'm going to take, I'm going to take I-95. And then you set all your metrics. I'm going to drive X amount of miles per day. I'm going to drive uh, X uh, 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 on this road at an average speed. And you're all excited because you hit your average speed and you hit, you're driving 300 miles a day. But you don't know where you're going. And so if there's a roadblock, what are you going to do? Panic or sit there. Whereas if you know you're going from, from, from D.C. to California, you can still have all the same metrics. And if you miss them because there's a storm or there's a roadblock, you can take a side road that to the rest of the world looks like you're going slowly or sideways, but you know you're just going around the traffic. And so that's what vision provides. Vision provides that infinite direction that we can sort of bend and weave our way towards it. And this is why the visionary and the operator work in perfect tandem. The visionary is fixated on the destination, that vision, and the operator is down in the weeds going, okay, I need to, I need to go slightly to the left, which even though it will look like I'm going off, off target, trust me, I just need to go around this boulder. And it's that constant communication between frontline and senior or operator and visionary that make an organization work. You've got to do it in teams. Great. Plus teams gives you courage. Oh. All right. Um, well, unfortunately, we've, we've reached really the end of our, our time here. Um, but, Simon, I'd like to thank you on behalf of the Army Corps of Engineers for your time, uh, your inspiration today, and the, the challenges that you've laid out for us. Um, as a reminder to our leadership, we'll be hosting an Infinite Game book club in three to four weeks to talk about some of these concepts more. Simon, you know, if you're free, you're more than welcome to join us, of course. Um, but Thanks. before you leave, Simon, uh, Major General Graham would like to say a few words. Um, so, General Graham, I'll turn it over to you. Can you hear me okay as we're working through our virtual? Simon, please, yes. Okay. So, so for everybody out there, this is probably the, the fifth time I've heard Simon talk, and I don't think he had that many gray whiskers when I first heard him talk. <laughs> so you can tell he's been, he's been working with DOD here for the, for the last couple of years. But every time I've, I've heard him talk, um, he causes us to think, and that's what we started off today which is we're going to step all of you who are running this organization, we're going to step away from the doing for two days, and, and we're just going to concentrate and think about how we're running this organization. Right? There's, for all of us senior leaders, there's that old adage that we're overscheduled and underworked, right, because we go from meeting to meeting to meeting, and those meetings are usually all forcing functions, right, that – the work happened, right, because nobody's going to come into the meeting unprepared, and that means something, progress happened. Um, but these two days are, are precious because we're, I, my goal here is that by the end of tomorrow, you are mentally frazzled, right? For, for, for Simon and his, and when he, when I listen to his talks, or any forum where we're asking to kind of think about how you run an organization, but really when, when Simon talks, um, I, you gauge how, how much of an impact he had by how desperately you want to get the heck out of this meeting and go get to work and start applying some of this stuff, right? Because he's inspired you, 
he's caused you to question how you're leading. He's caused you to question how your organization's performing, right? And so that, I'll call it kind of lightning in a bottle, that hopefully in looking at the chat room, that, that's some of what Simon's catalyzed in us today. we got to capture that. Right, and 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 we got to keep keep that going. So he's given us some momentum here today, right? Thanks, Dan. As he spoke to on this infinite game thing, um, it this doesn't end. Right? So I'm gonna just two more things. I'll turn us back over to Simon. You know, when you walk into an organization, I get a new leader that comes work for me. I ask him two things. I did this with uh, Steve Hill when I talked to him yesterday, and and it is. Hey, what's broke in the organization? If there's anything broke that you see, fix it immediately. If not, what we're looking for is this evolutionary change that, that, that Simon talked about, right? Because people aren't scared, they're, they're, they will get on board. And I think that's what Mr. Lee and, the, and Mike and the team here have crafted, which is a, a place of comfort where we can actually challenge ourselves and put forth these, these changes um, that are necessary. You know, to deliver for the people who are counting on us. Because they live below our dams, they live outside our levees. All right. So, again, Simon, thank you for uh, investing your time with us. Uh, it, it, it means a great deal, and we truly appreciate it, sir. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. And, and, and remember, you're, you're not just a, a group of people with a, a similar skill set, you're a culture first, and your skills come second. And, uh, uh, not every engineer belongs uh, in the Corps of Engineers, uh, but those who do will love being there and be proud to serve. So uh, count me amongst them. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this Inside the Castle podcast. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the Corps and revolutionize civil works together.